2: Today it's great to have Richard Ryan on the podcast. Dr. Ryan is a professor at the Institute for Positive Psychology and Education at Australian Catholic University in North Sydney and professor emeritus in psychology at the University of Rochester. Dr. Ryan is a clinical psychologist and co-developer of self-determination theory, one of the leading theories of human motivation. He is among the most cited researchers in psychology and social sciences today, ranking among the top one percent of researchers in the field. Dr. Ryan has been recognized as one of the eminent psychologists of the modern era, listed among the top twenty most influential industrial organizational psychologists, and has been honored with many distinguished career awards. He is co-author with Edward Deci of the book Self-Determination Theory: Basic Psychological Needs in Motivation, Development, and Wellness. Rich, it's so great to finally have a, sit down and have a chat with you.
3: Yeah, Scott, it's great to be here. Thanks for inviting me.
2: My pleasure. You know, I want to just go back to kind of trace the development of your thinking and and just who you are a little bit. You know, why? How did you get into the field of psychology in the first place?
3: Ooh, Scott, you know, those kind of questions are always pretty complicated. It was a for me, it was a circuitous route, but uh, I suppose this part would interest you a lot. I was a philosophy major when I was an undergraduate, uh, and awesome. uh, I had a strong interest in. Uh, phenomenology in particular, and issues of freedom and dialectics, and uh, so that guaranteed that I was unemployed upon graduation. And uh, so (laughs) the result of that was that I was looking for a job, and my wife was working in a a local facility for developmental disabilities, and she said there's a job for an aide open there. And I went there, they sent me to the wrong interview, and I ended up uh, directing a program for uh, helping people get out of the institution and live independently. And that mm-hmm. got me really interested in the issues of motivation and uh, intervention, and that led me to get back into psychology.
2: Cool. And you did your uh, PhD in in what, like, in what discipline of psychology? I'm, I'm a, a, a clinical
3: psychologist. Clinical? Clinical. Myself, I got yeah. my PhD at the University of Rochester in clinical. I was for many years the director of clinical training at Rochester uh, until I mm-hmm. went to Australia.
2: Excellent. And what was your like dissertation title? Hmm.
3: It was a really boring title. I can't tell you what it was, but they all are. Uh, but they I was basically are. testing the idea that uh, ego involvement will undermine your intrinsic motivation. So the more your ego is on the line, uh, the less you'll be intrinsically motivated. So that was my my dissertation.
2: Now that's really interesting because. Um, that I mean, that's a great obvious precursor to the more modern-day work that you've done on motivation. And so that really did start in grad school. Um, so who was, your, who was your advisor?
3: Well, when I started in grad school, uh, my area was uh, clinical neuropsychology. So I was doing a lot of work in evoke potential uh, research. And that, that was with Raphael Klorman, who was a great advisor for me. But, uh I converted, I guess. Uh, Ed Deasy and I were running gestalt groups together around the city of Rochester at the time, and we were um, you know, good friends as clinicians. Um, and then we, we started to talk theory, and he was already doing experiments on intrinsic motivation, and the two of us came together. So my dissertation really had moved over to uh, our beginnings of self-determination theory.
2: So you've really known Edward Deasy a long time. Oh, and, uh, I didn't even realize it went back to grad school.
3: Oh, no, Ed and I have been friends since 1977. So <laughs> we have a long history together.
2: <laughs> that is amazing. So, you know, the, the, a lot of this, well, all of this stuff, uh, this research went came after Abraham Maslow's passing. Um, I, um, as you know, as anyone who listens to my podcast knows, I'm a big fan of Abraham Maslow and the humanistic psychology era. Uh, and he, you know, really thought a lot about motivation, but he never used the the expression intrinsic extrinsic, right. you know, he, he never he never talked about that distinction. When did that distinction start to crop up in psychology and, uh, uh, you know, who were some of your major influencers early on in your career?
3: Well, I'd say a big influencer and this also applies to uh, DC is uh, Richard DeCharms. Richard DeCharmes wrote a book in 1968 called Personal Causation. Uh, yeah. In that book, he really describes the difference between feeling like an origin, like you're behind and, and engaged in your behavior versus a pawn, like you're being pushed around by external forces. So he was an attribution theorist in the tradition of Heider. He was also a psychodynamic thinker. Uh, I would say he, he was a big influencer. And he did work on, uh, he discussed intrinsic motivation, and he even discussed the hypothesis that... Rewards and ego involvement would undermine it, although he didn't do much work on that himself. Uh, It was really Ed who picked up that theme. So I would say it was around. Uh, Robert White was a big influence on us. Uh, I once got the opportunity to meet with Robert White, and he's well known for his idea of affectance motivation and competence motivation. Uh, So I'd say between the charms and his ideas about autonomy and Robert White and his ideas about competence; those are kind of the theoretical forerunners for our work.
2: Cool, and I'm because you did say you did mention you studied philosophy, so I am curious: who were some of your uh, philosopher influences, especially in your thinking about autonomy? Because that's a topic that. Well, obviously, philosophers have been thinking about for a really long time with issues of free will, and uh, I'm just curious if you you immersed yourself in the philosophy of mind, you know, or the existential philosophy literature at all before you got into the, even into the field of psychology. Yeah,
3: I'd say that was there before my interest in psychology. So I was a an, That's in awesome. college a student of Husserl. I was really interested in European phenomenology and existentialism. And in particular, there was, you know, there's an early phenomenologist whose name is Alexander Fonder, and he did a lot of work on the whole idea of uh, what he called will or self-determination uh, from a phenomenological point of view. And so he was he was certainly an early influence on me. I also was steeped in the philosophy of Paul Ricœur, who was a later phenomenological existential thinker. Um, I had a lot of uh, interest in the work of Sartre, uh, but also. Uh, analytic philosophy, to some extent, the work of Harry Frankfurt on uh, on uh, free will mm. uh, and autonomy has been really important. So, um, self-determination theory, I think, has always wanted to be well anchored and conversant uh, with its uh, with its philosophical underpinnings. And I think there's too few theories today that really uh, explicitly state their ontologies and epistemologies, and I think well, that's something that
2: we we
3: strongly want to do. And uh, this this has been there from the beginning.
2: Yeah, it's that's evident, and and that's a great that's a great feature, so to say, so to speak, of 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 your self determination theory. Um, be, even before we we get into the nuts and bolts of the theory and um, things surrounding that, I want to stay on the philosophy topic for a second because this is a topic that very much interests me. You know, I had a I had a, a two part series debate with Sam Harris for this podcast about uh, free will. And uh, uh, do you follow Sam Harris at all? Have you ever? I, I, don't. I don't. That's fine well that's your excuse for that but he uh he, he he's very much uh believes we don't have free will um and, and it's usually, it's usually uh, a
3: straw man argument it's usually a definition of free will that no one would ever want anyway uh, <laughs> so so i'm pretty skeptic about anybody who argues the free will idea because they usually set up some kind of ridiculous model of what free will would look like like There's no prior causes, there's no prior thought, there's no prior input, it has to come ex nihilo, And of course, no events in the universe happen that way, so they win. If that's what free will is,
2: (laughs) they win. Yeah, I hear you, brother. I hear you, brother. Well, there, there's a definition. There is a certain definition one could propose, as he does, that you know he's right in in the, in that sense, in the sense he's talking about. But I do think there's a there's a free will worth wanting. I think that the kind of uh, self determination you talk about in your research is a free will worth wanting. I think Daniel Dennett, you know, the the philosopher of mind who is uh, is a compatibilist, would, would agree. You know, uh, with with that is so. I do want to know like your conceptualization of self-determination like what is it you know before we get to the nuts and bolts of the needs and and the nuances of the theory let's just talk about self-determination for a sec because i think that's an interesting uh, in its in and of itself of what does that mean among humans mm-hmm. what are we well, determining know we, we could
3: translate <laughs> it into some other terms like self-regulation you know self-determination mm. is when you know, what you're doing is something that you feel that you're regulating. and In other words, that it's a, you're also a behavior that you stand behind or self-endorse. This is why it aligns with the phenomenological view of self-determination, because when you act with self-determination, you're acting in a way where you're willing to do it, and you do it volitionally, and therefore you can be wholeheartedly engaged in what you're up to. Um, so in, in kind of that, that briefest form, self-determination is true volition.
2: True volition. So there's a lot of things that can arise that can pull me away from, uh, or even fool me into thinking I'm, I'm I have volition when I when I really don't. Um, I'm fascinated with the phenomenon of cults, you know, mm. and I'm, I'm fascinated with the phenomenon of mind control. Yeah. Um, so I guess you can have. External coercion, and you can have you can have internal coercion. You know, people with OCD, um, you know, people with lots of things, a lot of competing, you know, psychopathologies and things that are their inner um, taking them away from. Yep. You know, I would say they're higher self. So so I, I think that and you're, maybe, and you're maybe there's some, right, yeah.
3: yeah. You're just right, Scott, which is that it's not parallel to the distinction between internal and external because you can have heteronymous forces that are within. You can have your own interjects. You can have your own internalized stigmas and pressures and biases that actually take you away from uh, self-determination and autonomy. So the the threats to autonomy are not just external, they're also internal.
2: Yeah, and Carl and Carl Rogers talked about that introjection. I think is the phrase he used. Yeah, so that, we that's certainly the, same the case. So. Yeah, yeah. I'm sorry. Awesome. Yeah. No, that's awesome. Do you use it as adapt adapting it from Carl Rogers or just a coincidence?
3: No, actually, you know, Carl Rogers also adapted it from where I did, which is from psychoanalytic theory. Uh, when we talk about an mm. introject, you're talking about a partially assimilated uh, internalization. Uh, And, uh, and Rogers meant it in the same way. Um, You know, if we, if I was to trace it where I got the term from, it would be from my psychoanalytic training, and particularly from the work of Roy Schaefer, uh, who who really did talk about a continuum of motivations, um, not too dissimilar from what we did. But, you know, we, we adopted it without the same psychoanalytic assumptions.
2: This is great. Okay, so t- can you tell our listeners a little bit, uh, can you go through the motivational continuum? Let's start with, like, just going through the motions. <laughs> sure. Um, I mean, when you, far, when, you think, far left.
3: Yeah. when you think about uh, any action you have when you ask people, why are you doing what you're doing? There's a whole variety of answers people might give. One answer might be, I'm being forced to do it or compelled to do it by forces that are outside me. Um, that would be you know, coercion, and it would be a form of being externally regulated. I, they're making me do it. Um, I, I could also be uh, seduced into doing something with a carrot that's riding in front of me or a reward. Uh, I'm now doing it for the reward, so it's still an external force that's driving me, but here it's an appetitive force. We call both of those external regulation. That's when your motivation is dependent on either the external uh, pressure or the external rewards that are out there. And if those weren't there, your motivation would go away. Uh, the, another kind of motivation is, uh, well, uh, why are you doing that? Well, because I think I should, or I'd feel bad about myself if I didn't, or uh, you know, uh, my, uh, I feel proud of myself if I do this thing. We call those things interjection. Because those are internal rewards and punishments that are driving your behavior, the fear of anxiety or shame or uh, the ego boost of, uh, of uh, you know, inflating yourself by feeling really great. Um, those things are also motivating forces that we call interjection. And they're not very autonomous either because we can be pushed around just as you were just saying uh, by those interjects. You know, my shoulds can make me do a lot of things that are not really what I value. Still, again, we can do things because uh, uh, we're uh, valuing them. We actually believe in them. So, you know, I might do something like collect money for a cause I care about. It's no fun, it's not interesting, but I truly value it. So I volitionally and willingly do it, and we would call this Mm. identification because you're identified with your goal and your aim in that case, and that's also very volitional and highly autonomous. And finally, you know, we talk about intrinsic motivation. Now we're doing this is when you do something just because it's inherently enjoyable and interesting to you to do. Uh, so it's also fully volitional. And so you can see here we move from being externally controlled all the way up to being fully volitional, and this is why we call it a continuum of autonomy. But it has lots of way stations along the line uh, of different types of motives. Uh, the further talk- you up on that continuum in your motivation. The better the outcomes typically are, the higher your well-being, the better your performance, uh, the more congruent you are in action, the less conflicted. So, you know, many good things happen from being more on the more autonomous end of that motivation continuum.
2: Cool. Thank you. Thank you for explaining that. Um, and, and you have like a, a test that like people like employees and companies can take to like or or is it sort of? Do you have you developed any instruments?
3: Well, we yeah, we've developed a lot of instruments, and some of them are for mm. uh, research use. Uh, you know, because our research mm. instruments tend to be longer, and because they have to get through the gauntlet of, of, uh, of the psychometrics journals demand. But then we do a lot of work in industry, and there we use things that are really practical measures. You know, I, I have a. A uh, company that I started with Scott Rigby that's called Motivation Works, and in there we measure what we call motivation quality very quickly with employees. But you know, it's basically asking them, what are the drivers of your work on your job? And to the extent that they're more external, you see lower quality motivation, less you know more absenteeism, uh, more you know uh, less less good organizational behavior, uh, poor performance. You see the opposite: the more people are really
2: intrinsically motivated
3: and identified with their work goals
2: wonderful wonderful uh one one question i wanted to ask you um on this about this motivational continuum was uh samir nara muhammad's work at penn um he's found that a great motivating force and i have found this personally in my life a great motivating force is uh the underdog uh narrative um feeling like you have something to prove to someone who doesn't who doesn't believe in you but you still believe in yourself you know, um, and I was wondering, like, where is that on the motivational continuum? I mean, that's probably like an extra, extrinsic. I put, mo- put it right in there with, as an
3: interject. I'm going to show them. So now, you know, you're being reactive, plus you're also trying to live up to a standard that's really being externally defined in that case. Uh,
2: you know, this is like. But the, it feels so good. But it feels so good to crush your competition once who doesn't believe in you.
3: Uh, it may. It seems like a pretty empty goal. I mean, if that's that's the kind of basis of somebody's overall motivation, I think then it's pretty limited as a goal. You know, like I would rather not have somebody become a a PhD in psychology because they want to prove to their mom that they're good. I'd rather that they (laughs) loved the field of psychology and cared about the content of that field, that they were more concerned with their understanding of the field than the grades that they got or the credentials they attained. I mean, these these kind of, I'm not saying that those are not motivating goals, but they're uh, kind of an impoverished form of motivation because the goal is is pretty superficial, and then um it, it can be pretty easily undermined
2: I think that I would push back at that for a little bit and say that maybe at certain points in people's lives it it serves a really good purpose. You know when I was younger, um I was at special ed as a kid, and um you know no none of my teachers or anyone believed in my intellectual potential. Um, and I had to generate this kind of FU attitude from within. I mean, it's the only thing that saved me, Ryan, you know what I mean? It's the only thing that saved me to be like, you know, what I'm going to prove to them that I do have some kind of intelligence. Now I do agree that a more mature, you know, intrinsic to the right of your continuum someday, you know, you want to morph and, 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 and which I did Thank thankfully, I don't still feel like I need to prove anything to yeah. anybody, <laughs> yeah. but, but I do think as a child, it served, it served uh, its purpose.
3: Well, you know, again, I'm not going to argue that it's not a motivation. It is. It sits in the middle of our continuum. It's something that shows some, uh, some, some energizing functions. But think about it, Scott. Wouldn't it have been better had you had people who actually did care about, uh, where you were headed, believed in you, supported you for that growth? I mean, there, there would have been a much nicer motivational path to the same outcomes. Uh, than the the one that you outlined. And I'm not saying I don't that know. You, you had to compensate for some bad motivational circumstances and, and Honestly
2: I don't know because um, <laughs> Samir's research and I would love to I'd love to send you this paper uh, that Samir just published this paper. Um, he's at Warden. Um, he actually contrasted two motivations uh, narratives. One is the underdog, but the other is the favorite narrative, which is like people always believed in me, and you know, and then I made it. And he found that the underdog one, like, increased performance better than than the other one. So that kind of like turns on its head a little bit, you know, the the narratives we tell ourselves. You know, maybe some are. It, it, I can believe motivated. that. In a, I
3: can believe that in a short term experiment. I can believe that. Or I, I I totally get it as a dynamic. I don't think it's a sustainable dynamic as sustainable. a making a living and. Uh, being being really engaged in your field, if it's if it's all about your ego proving, I think it's it's gonna not sustain itself.
2: Did you see the Last Dance by any chance? No, I didn't. Michael Jordan has is known for. Uh, we, of course, you know who Michael Jordan yeah, yeah. is right. Yeah, he is known for creating imaginary uh, foes to to keep him sustain. So to him, I would I would again I'd push back <laughs> at certain contexts. Maybe like. NBA sports, you know, like it might be sustainable to like keep like, you know, being like, I'm going to prove, I'm going to prove them wrong. You know, it might be, I, might be, I actually don't, I don't think you would
3: explain Michael Jordan's persistence and success by that motive that
2: would alone, be, that'd be alone. My, yeah.
3: Michael, I'm not saying he doesn't create a game for himself and doesn't, you know, pump himself up in these ways. Those sound like ways yeah. to get himself intrinsically motivated to present himself with challenge to. Um, mm. But I, I I can't imagine that that would be a, a basis for the career of Michael Jordan's.
2: <laughs> <laughs> You'd be surprised, but I I do think that like not maybe not that alone. Like he, he obviously does have intrinsic love yeah. for the game, and yeah, I mean without the intrinsic love for the, the game, you know, it seems like hard to be sustainable. Um, I mean, can't you have like multiple of these motives at once?
3: Uh, actually, our self-termination model says you almost always do. So, you know, when I'm involved in my work, you know, to some extent it's intrinsically motivated, to some extent it's coming out of value, to some extent I'm interjected and need to do well, (laughs) you know, beat myself up if I wrote a poor article. So, you know, you have multiple motives always going. And what we look at is where's the relative autonomy in that, you know, because it's a balance of those things. Um, But they, they certainly coexist and they coexist within every, almost within every act. You know, there's hardly any. Humans anything. are messy. Pure. Inter- yeah. Yeah. And yeah, we have multiple motives usually um, going. and uh, But when some become predominant, it can undermine the quality of our overall actions.
1: Mm. And that's what really I get, like I get
3: back to. You. I, I don't doubt that, you know, people pump themselves up with little uh, ego games like that. I don't think it's, mm. if that's where your main motivation is sitting, it's not going to end up in high quality motivation over time. Mm.
2: Okay, so let's go into some of your uh, the needs, the major needs of self-determination theory and how you selected them. You know, Why would they make the cut? <laughs>
3: mm. Well, you know, we didn't start out with a theory of basic psychological needs. We started out with a, a narrower theory of what are the things that facilitate or undermine intrinsic motivation. Mm. And we found that context that supported people's autonomy and supported people's feelings of competence were the things that really drove intrinsic motivation. And then when we started to look at internalization and what are the things that uh, lead people to deeply internalize the values of their culture, the people around them, it was feeling of autonomy that they, you know, the reading of autonomy supported, that they could feel competent to do the things that um, were being asked of them. And then third, that they felt closely connected to others. So autonomy, competence, and relatedness popped out really strongly for the basis of internalization. And as we were studying these things that feed into high-quality motivation, and all of our studies were showing that when you had autonomy, competence, and relatedness, you also had high well-being, all the indices of flourishing, and that's when we started to move toward a theory of basic needs, that a full-functioning person is, is, has their volition, has that sense of efficacy, and feels socially connected and uh, purposive in what they're doing. So those things congeal uh, in a full-functioning person. So those, they seem like necessary conditions for wellness. And so, you know, as we've looked in settings like workplaces, classrooms, uh, health clinics, uh, psychotherapy settings, we see all three of those needs really being uh, um, potent uh, drivers of the, of the wellness outcomes that are there. So I, I can say really empirically we came to the th- these as three basic needs. But there's also a deductive portion of it. Uh, SDT is what we call an organismic theory. It grows out of the organismic psychological tradition, and in that, you know, when you think about what is a, a healthy organism, it's uh, organism that's moving in the direction of differentiation and integration, which means that it's moving in a direction of greater self-regulation, of autonomy, and greater effectiveness in its environment. And if it's a social organism, greater integration. So those three concepts, autonomy, competence, and relatedness, fall deductively out of organismic thinking, as well as inductively out of what we found in all of our research on motivation.
2: How much did you sort of consult Maslow's writings on basic the basic needs, and uh, um, you know, you, yeah, like there's no self-actualization. As a specific need in your theory, and uh, just wondering if like, did you consider any of his?
3: Well, his I think stuff? organismic theory says that there's an inherent propensity towards integration, which is very close to the self-actualization idea. Um, and certainly Rogers idea of self-actualization was also an integrative idea. So I think there were some parallel ideas over there. Um, you know for myself, you know Maslow was a, an author I read as a kid so you know because i was i'm so much older so for me he was like a a a person i read as a teenager and i wouldn't say he wasn't influential but he was influential more in the sense of like pointing to possibilities in the field uh than Mm -hmm. in terms of formal theory um you know i i very much think that the the humanistic spirit in focusing on self-actualization has some kinship with sdt's idea of an active individual who's moving in a direction of integration all the time so there are similarities spiritual i
2: agree well i agree and i I think the integration piece is so essential i was wondering how you incorporate the integration piece into self-determination theory because one could have um you know could score high in in the the needs uh for relatedness competence autonomy um but still not be particularly integrated as a whole human right
3: i don't think that's so Um, You know, again,
2: when we're thinking about need satisfaction, if I think about a setting in which somebody has
3: all three of those needs setting, it's almost by definition that they're integrated in their functioning there. Because if Mm -hmm. I have those needs satisfied, that means I'm pursuing the things that matter to me, that I value, that interest me. So I have volition. um, I have connection and social support because I have the relatedness and I'm feeling efficacious. You know, I can't see in that anything other than uh, a pretty integrated um, person.
2: Are there any um, needs that, that you're considering uh, adding to the picture? Um, yeah, I'll, I'll just ask that question. Well, yeah. you, you know, considered well, know we've items? always had an
3: open list. So, you know, we, we came out with a tentative theory of uh, three basic needs. Uh, by the early 90s, we were sort of in that place. And we've always kept the list open for uh, people to nominate other things. Uh, one of my former students, Tim Kasser, at one time tried to uh, put security into the list. But as we mm. as we looked at the need for security, we found that kind of in line with, uh, with Maslow's thinking here, it's really a deficit need. It's really something that rears its head when you don't have it. But if you have it, it, it's not very prominent and it's not all that enhancing. So it doesn't predict wellness. It's kind of like a necessary but not sufficient condition for some things to happen in your life. So security was one that we tried to bring in to meet criteria, but didn't meet those criteria. More recently, uh, Frank Martella from Finland uh, joined our group in Rochester when I was still there, and, and he him. was interested in uh, benevolence and altruism as a possible basic psychological need. And I will say, you know, exploring that the evidence has shown really how much of a, a wellness enhancer benevolence is. When people act with benevolence. They are typically doing so autonomously, so they're satisfying their autonomy need. They're typically feeling effective, so they're getting some competence needs. They're connecting with people, but they're also getting some kind of warm glow of benevolence, which has its own unique effect on wellness, and uh, and we found that over and over again. So, uh, although benevolence doesn't fit all the criteria we have for what a basic need is, it certainly is an enhancement, a wellness enhancer, and it's a big part of how people find meaning in life
2: so yeah I, I would agree with that i i i support adding adding that to your list um i i don't know uh if you if you have heard uh, about my book transcend that mm-hmm. came out uh, recently i um, have i have i i'd love to send you a copy and uh perhaps we could compare and contrast and really nerd out someday um, and get in the weeds in a way that our listeners probably don't want to listen to right now. But, (laughs) but, but you know, my tendency is (laughs) always to
3: nerd out. My tendency is always to nerd out. So, you know, you have to stop me when I go there.
2: (laughs) Oh, I love it. Oh no. I mean, that's my, that's my tendency too. And um, I'd love to uh, maybe just discuss with you some uh, needs that I've added that, that aren't in your theory um, and maybe, uh, you know, you have good reasons for that. And, you know, maybe I need to rethink things. Maybe you need, you need to rethink things. (laughs) Who knows? Um, but, um, uh, one thing that I was really excited about the benevolence thing is I did add that as a separate need from the need for connection. Um, I did separate those out in my, in my revised hierarchy of needs. Um, and I've been developing a scale with my colleagues called the light triad scale. I don't know if you've come across that Uh at all. Um, (laughs)
3: That's a great idea. You have? Right? As, as opposed to the dark yeah. triad.
2: <laughs> yeah, exactly. Have you come across it at all in the literature? I have not, Scott.
3: So you'll have to. Okay, I'll send you.
2: I'll send you that. Totally I'll send you that paper. Yeah. Um, and yeah, and I think that really does capture more. Well, we call it a benevolent orientation, you know, towards others. To contrast with uh, in. I don't know
3: if you've yeah. seen. Uh, we have a, a meta-analysis that shows that uh, pro-social, you know, behavior and antisocial behavior are strongly predicted in meta-analysis by autonomy and control so when people have autonomy mm. they tend to be pro-social we think of that as the default in human nature uh, and under controlled circumstances they tend to be more anti-social and I, I think it it fits with this this overall idea
2: i won't even go there about the uh, COVID masks uh, people who and uh, p- people who don't want to be controlled for Having to wear masks or having to get vaccinations, and uh, and what that controlling does to to those people's personalities, we'll just not talk about that at all. <laughs> but um, <clears throat> but uh, yeah, I hear what you're saying. Um, yeah, so there's uh, I would I would propose hum- and I say this humbly, I have the utmost of respect for your work. But I think maybe it'd be nice to consider adding the need for exploration, as I, as I add in my revised hierarchy of needs um, in, in your model, because I, we do find that is a separate need. Let um, me just say a couple things it, about yeah. that,
3: though. I mean, I, I'm happy to consider all needs, but the problem with calling something like exploration a basic need is that it's really something that happens in certain domains and times, and it doesn't cut across all of the types of things we typically explain with basic needs. When people are in an exploratory mode, they're typically getting a high satisfaction of the need for competence. When they're truly in exploratory mode, they have a lot of volition behind that. And so there's a lot of already basic need satisfaction going on in exploration. And so to have it be its own basic need, you'd have to say, well, exploration is part of all the different behaviors people engage in. And it's I necessary it is. for all of those.
2: And I think that's the I think part. I could make a case that it is. Okay. Yeah. Um, my colleague Colin DeYoung and I are, are writing a paper. Well, it's taking a long time to finish it, but the, how why the need for exploration is? I mean, it, it's it's aimless. It's aimless in a lot of ways and goalless. And I would actually, I would actually argue that it's uh, separate, uh, clearly distinct from the need for competence and mastery. And and I would even go so far, and I know you're going to totally disagree with me on this, and it's totally fine. Please feel free to disagree on anything I say. But I I would actually make the case that the need for competence is tied to to, to ego and self esteem. Uh, and it, it, uh, is more if, the, yeah. it
3: is if it's uh, controlled competence. Mm. In other words, if so I you if, can if, distinguish if, if what's driving my competence is the kind of ego involvement we were talking about before, then indeed. Indeed.
2: Mm. But there can be a more, so you think, so you could distinguish between a more exploratory form of mastery competence from an ego form? Do you yeah.
3: Think? Yeah, I think so. Mm. You know, again, it gets back to what, what's motivating your uh, your activity there.
2: Very interesting. Um, and yeah, so well, let's talk about self-esteem because I, I do actually posit the need for self-esteem as its own thing and i've read i've read great papers you've you've written on this arguing why um you didn't include self esteem in your model yeah. um and i i think you've made great points you know they're very wise and very buddhist way of thinking about it and um i was wondering if you could unpack a little bit um why you didn't include self esteem in your model and then maybe i could try to defend why i why i did in my model but i'd would love to hear some of your thinking about that
3: well self esteem gets used in some different ways um when you but typically you measure self-esteem you're asked you're you're getting it's a positive self-concept that people have Um, and there's no doubt that you know it's good to have that positive view of yourself and your social relations that gets measured with self-esteem measures but if you have if you're engaged in life in a way that has autonomy if you feel connectedness with other people if you feel effective at what you're doing you have self-esteem But that means it's a derivative it's an outcome of these other satisfactions that we have in life but if you're motivated to get self-esteem we call that ego involvement i mean why am i concerned Mm -hmm. about how i'm being uh evaluated or how i'm am i good or am i bad just the very fact of entering into those questions and those comparisons has moved me you know away from a more autonomous kind of functioning but when i'm functioning well i'm not one, I mean, when a person is functioning well, they're not wondering, how, how am I doing? How do I compare to the others? Am I great? Those questions don't even come up because you are feeling good. So self-esteem is, a, is an evaluative stance with respect to yourself. I mean, this is one view of it. Uh, and that's not a basic need. It grows out of certain kind of social situations. And sometimes it's actually a harmful problem to be focused on self-esteem.
2: Yeah, this is a really interesting question. Motivation uh, versus need. I mean, I think uh, I try to make the case that I do believe self-esteem is a need. Uh, it is a fundamental need. You see, you see a, a catastrophic a failures, um, a depression, et cetera, with very low levels of self-esteem. So a certain, certain minimum threshold, it, it seems to be required of a healthy self-esteem versus a narcissistic self-esteem. Um, but also I include need for safety in my model because I think it's a need. But I, I actually, I very much take your point. I think it's an excellent point. About if your if your primary motivation is self esteem, and that that does maybe connote a sense of disintegration in the system to a certain degree. So I would absolutely agree with that. Um, and it actually, you raise an interesting question about individual differences. Something I'm interested in very much. You know, people have uh, e- even in all three of your needs, some people people vary dra- dramatically the extent to which they. Want uh, connections, you know, in their lives, or people vary dramatically. To the extent they want autonomy and competence. So, um, you know, what what have you found in from an individual difference persp- perspective? Are there things ones that like are there better better predictors of of things in life than others? You know, from a variation perspective.
3: Well, well the first thing is is that people will vary in terms of their self-reported preference or care about autonomy, relatedness, or competence. One of the good things about SDT is it's a functional theory. It says it doesn't matter whether you like or care about those things. If you don't have them, you show the deterioration functioning associated that the theory predicts or, and when you do have them, even if you say, I, it doesn't matter to me, having them enhances your wellness. So this is a functional theory rather than a, a, a preference theory. And we even show that preferences don't really change those results much. Uh, there's no interaction between getting your needs met and it predicting wellness and whether that's what you thought you wanted. Um, so, you know, there's that, I think that's really important because when we're thinking about needs, we're not talking about people's values, we're talking about the requirements they have to be full functioning. By the way, just a side story, can I tell you one quick side story? Oh, please, yeah, of course, of course. In- it was somewhere around 19, I'm going to say 72, that I, you know, because you asked me about Maslow, I had read some of his books at the time. Uh, I had dropped out of college and I was living up in Cambridge, and just mm-hmm. reading a lot and you know, working in factories. I was a factory wrecker at the time, and I read one of Maslow's books and I thought, oh, he's at Brandeis. I will go see him, because you know, I was a kid mm-hmm. and I didn't know any better. Uh, so I went. To over to Brandeis and I went to his office and I knocked on his door and somebody saw me knocking on his door and they said, oh, you know, uh, Dr. Maslow's passed away. Mm. So I never got to talk to him. And uh, mm. recently somebody said to me, you know, if you had gotten in, what would you have asked? And I thought, gee, <laughs> you know, I wonder. <laughs> I have no idea what my young 21-year-old mind would have asked at the time, but I, I clearly had questions for him. So... You know, he I was, love that he was a figure
2: <laughs> in my mind. Yeah, I love that. I love that. I love that. you're twenty one years self, you liked Abraham Maslow, uh, and I. Uh, that's, that's wonderful. Um, well, um, you know what about the higher needs? Well, how come I, there aren't higher needs in your um, in your model, like um, like the need for self transcendence or. Uh, all, or maybe it's because they're not needs, uh, you they're, know, what, they're not needed. They,
3: they can be outcomes of integration. However, in other words, you know, STT mm. is an organismic theory. It says that the fullest functioning organism is an integrated one. Um, and a lot of these things that we see in what you're, you're calling higher needs are really, uh, highly integrated people, um, who, you know, are, are pursuing the things that matter to them.
2: But you have you certainly have a lot of people who are high in uh, competence, autonomy, and uh, relatedness um, who aren't motivated by transcendence. Uh, and this is Maslow's point. He actually, the end of his life, he distinguished between two kinds of self actualizers: uh, transcending self actualizers and non transcending self actualizers.
3: You probably won't like this, Scott, but I actually think that that part of the era of humanistic psychology did humanistic psychology in. Hmm. The split totally over like transpersonal and transcendence versus mainstream humanistic psychology, I think, really hurt that field. Hmm. And that's not to, to in any way disvalue, devalue the, the idea of transcendence, but it became so central in some people's minds that they kind of kicked out the Rogerians and the other non-transcendent hmm. Humanistic psychology at the time. I don't know if you know about the fights at the Journal of Humanistic Psychology and All of that stuff that happened at that time, but it was a sad moment. I think for The movement of humanistic psychology, which you know, I was not a part of I'm only saying this as a Historical note, it wasn't just a pretty picture um, What he was doing at the end of his career.
2: Okay. Well, uh, there goes my book. No, I'm There goes my book. Transcend. <laughs> no, no, it doesn't take away at all
3: from the importance of that topic. I'm <laughs> only saying that, um, you know, it's, know a, sure. it's a it's a piece of a larger puzzle of a healthy organism.
2: But when you make yeah, make, I, and I
3: I agree. And uh, the, I think that they put so much stress on that, and there were some mm-hmm. more empirically minded psychologists who just couldn't go there, and they lost them from the movement.
2: Yeah, I see, I really do see what you're saying. And, um, yeah, I try to go to, to great pains to distinguish between healthy transcendence and unhealthy transcendence. And healthy transcendence is very much about integrating all the other needs before, um, you try to kind of jump jump to you know being enlightened you know the i'm enlightened and you're not effect that's narcissism not transcendence you well, know? As you know i've done but a lot of
3: work and, and not just me but people in sdt have done a lot of work on the issue of mindfulness and how mindfulness mm. relates to full yeah. functioning people i don't think of yeah. mindfulness as transcendence i think of it as being here now i think of mindfulness as really being deeply aware of what's going on in the current moment And in touch with both your inner states and with what's going on outside, transcendence doesn't describe that. Awareness describes that. I think awareness is is hugely important to autonomy. You cannot be autonomous unless you first have awareness. And so mindfulness, you know, for us, plays a kind of uh, is the ground out of which autonomy best grows.
2: I like that. You know, as like it's definitely a grounding skill to have and it definitely does ground me and has been a, a saver a lifesaver for me in many instances and true, and um, true for
3: me too you know i've had a my own involvement in the in zen practice now for some 30 years and, uh, and i'm wow. really you know happy when i met uh, kirk brown who brought mindfulness into the sdt framework uh, in a pretty direct
2: yeah.
3: way um, so I, I think it's been important for our um, theorizing
2: i agree and, and 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 self-determination theory i mean uh, major kudos, the extent to which it's pervaded many other areas of psychology and, and has in, uh, shown its implications in wide swaths of society. So I thought, uh, for this latter part of our interview, can I go down some domains of life and kind of talk to me about the implications? Um, so re- re- one, relationships. I mean, this is one right now during COVID. I think that people are, are very much lacking in that need. I feel like that need is frustrated, you know? Um, uh, can you talk a little about, um, some work you've done on uh, self-determination theory in in that domain?
3: The first thing I want to say is we've been collecting a lot of data on need satisfaction during COVID. Um, uh, A lot of this work grows out of the the group that's in Ghent, Belgium. So we have a lot of work on the Belgian population around need satisfaction on a day-to-day basis really over uh, the pandemic. And the relatedness need is really hurting in a lot of people and particularly young people. And so when you look at, you know, you asked before about why are people kind of breaking out, not following social distancing rules, a lot of it is related to need frustration and particularly in a group of people mm. uh, in a period of life where relatedness is huge. And uh, so, um, you know, we, we, at first we've seen that a lot. So, um, but anyway, what was, your, what was your question? That was a side <laughs> Well, no, in that was great. How, how does SDT deal with relationships?
2: You know, what are the implications of, of STD in the domain of relationships?
3: Well, you know, STT has organized a, a series of mini-theories. Uh, the latest mm. of those mini-theories, uh, the sixth of them, is called relationship motivation theory. And mm. uh, so it's really an explanation of what what are the ingredients of a high-quality relationship. And you know, one of the things we argue in STT is you can it's not just warmth, closeness, being nice, being supportive. Those things don't make for an intimate relationship, there also has to be autonomy support. There has to be a care about the self of the other. And an interest in the promotion of this has got to be a kind of an agopic theme within a relationship for it to be super high quality. And that's what our data shows, which is that uh, it's only in autonomy supportive relationships that you have true intimacy. And, you know, this is kind of suggested in some other theories of relationships, but SDT makes it explicit. And looks at the way in which controlling motives or controlling tendencies and ego involvements really, really do create problems in relationships. And just want to credit here, particularly Chip Knee's work at University of Houston, Mm -hmm. because he's done a lot of great work in this area.
2: This idea of autonomy, supportive environments is... um has really pervaded the literature greatly, especially in the workplace. I, I've, I see it everywhere in the workplace literature, which is um, exciting, you know, that more people are talking about that. Um, did you? Uh, what did you think of Dan Pink's book, Drive?
3: Well, you know, Dan came, when he wrote Drive, he came to Rochester to interview Ed and me. He spent a few days here. Wonderful. You know, that's, that's how he got the basis for that book. Um, you know, the book basically explicates autonomy, competence, and he uses the term purpose, as opposed to relatedness. So he has autonomy. I think his autonomy, mastery, purpose are the three things he comes away with. Uh, But, you know, there's- He took
2: away relationships. (laughs)
3: Yeah.
2: Yeah. Uh, He took that away.
3: I, um, you know, uh, it's become a very popular view. People oftentimes will sort of say, Pink's theory of this.
2: Oh, that's (laughs) ridiculous. So, you know,
3: I I get a little tweaked on that, but I actually really appreciate Dan's work on this because he helped popularize it. He helped bring- some of the message of this research to the organizational field. And we want that, you know, so I think popular writers play a huge role in helping translate, um, nerdy academic work like ours and self-determination theory into the practical world. So I totally appreciate the book drive.
2: Uh, for yeah, me. because it's really, um, it, it's become a, it, it was a popular book. that it, it was, it, it had a lot of implications for the workplace. A lot of people adopt in the workplace. I'm just wondering in your own, your own world, your own research, um, you know how much do you intersect with uh, the workplace? Do you do you do consulting personally?
3: Uh, yeah, ongoingly actually. I started a company in 2003 with Scott Rigby, who was a, a former PhD student, oh. and we still write together on issues yeah. of mindfulness and uh, uh, or and uh, human relations uh, kind of things. Um, but Scott and I started a company called Motivation Works. Uh, we uh, measure the motivational climate, or the work climate within companies, uh, we, we uh, do interventions to help managers become more autonomy supportive. So you know, very much so, we, we're, we're always on the front lines of that kind of work. And it's, and it's hugely important because you know, we spend so much of our time in our workplaces, and uh, they should be places for thriving, and uh, they can be uh, under the right, uh, right circumstances.
2: Yeah, I, I feel like a lot of I fear that a lot of workplaces still have a very outdated model of what it takes to motivate yeah. people intrinsically. Yeah. Um, they're not they're not thinking how can we motivate people intrinsically. <laughs> I feel like they're not a lot of a lot of companies aren't even even thinking of that question. <laughs> they're just like, how do we motivate people? Yeah. I
3: think this is, relates to some of the findings we have in S D T, though. When people are put under p- controlling pressures, they often respond yeah. with controlling solutions for the people who are around them, and so you see. Within organizations, a lot of times when you have a controlling manager, they'll even say, well, it's not the way I want to be, but they're making me. And they point up above. you see this kind of downhill uh, control mm. thing go on. So, you know, changing uh, company climate not, is, a, is a big task because you, you have to do it at multiple levels of the company. You can't just be, you know, go in here and tweak one manager. It's a, it's about a whole climate. It's about an atmosphere. Um, and uh, a
2: yeah, whole culture. Yeah. Mm. Well, this uh, segues into a topic I'm very much interested in, uh, education and, uh, and educational culture. Um, talk about you know designing a system to get the worst out of people. <laughs> we've, that's what we've done in our American education system and around the world. Yeah, really um, the world. yeah have you uh, – sorry, what did you say?
3: I said really around the world. I mean, yes, in the around U.S., the world, but yeah. yes, elsewhere too. Yeah,
2: for sure. For sure. But there's so many clear implications of your theory for young adulthood, identity development, self-esteem, and their authenticity. Um, you know, all things that we don't uh, focus on developing was in students that we, we, we should. Um, so what are your, some of your thoughts on uh, the, those linkages?
3: Well, just the first thing is, is that, you know, if we had a goal for schools that their context of development and you'd want them to be places where children are helped to flourish to become all that they can be later, um, mm-hmm. and and to be able to discover what matters to them and to develop the tools so they can pursue it. That's not at all the way schools are framing their goals. They're talking about get more STEM students, get high achievement scores on the standardized tests for, um, you know, they, they've really lost the thread of what what are the values and the goals that we should have in a place where we put our children for multiple hours every day. and. Uh, you know, to me, the goal of school is to create a an interested, engaged, and enabled and empowered student. And the hmm. factors that would go into that are quite different than the ones that we're currently using, which are focused around evaluations, grades, and social comparisons.
2: That's for that's for that's for darn sure. Um, well, I mean, what 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 can we do? What can, you know, how can well, we uh, promote this more in schools.
3: No, I think one of the values of psychological research is we are looking at the techniques that teachers can do within classrooms that can make them more motivating and engaging places for students. But then, you know, teachers can only do that if they themselves have the support and the uh, room for autonomy to create those kind of engaging atmospheres. So, that, you know, the research really shows that when you've got autonomy support from your principal, you can be a more engaging teacher. When that principal has autonomy support from their superintendent, they can have a a better school climate and superintendents need, of course, the support from their boards and from their governments. We have a lot of dumb policies in place in the United States and Australia and uh, in a lot of countries that have high stakes standardized testing being the gauge by which schools are judged. And this drives the worst kind of classroom behavior because it has everybody focused on a very narrow outcome. And then they have to use controlling means to get students to to meet those outcomes and everybody loses in that task. So what can we do? We can change policy. We can get rid of high stakes standardized testing right now. There's no value to it in any school. Pearson should be embarrassed that they do these things because what's happening with high stakes standardized testing is it, it, uh, it, by putting high stakes behind these outcomes, it leads schools to be more uh, pressuring of students in a way that doesn't help them learn. So we're spoiling the very ingredients of of positive learning by having these imposed score goals.
2: And another is
3: STEM, this focus on STEM. Everyone must be a STEM student. Well, I'm sorry, but if you look around the world, humans are a diverse lot and we need all kinds of people with all kinds of different skills and driving everybody down a narrow road for college prep and science courses is really a way of damaging the self-esteem and the motivation and the engagement of so many of our students. You know, we have to get off of these fetishes. There's not enough STEM jobs for all the people we graduate now. Uh, But even more so, there's a lot of things that students aren't learning in school that would really help them navigate life better. And instead, we're focused on giving them yet another calculus course before they leave high school. I, I don't see these things as being well thought through in terms of social policy.
2: Yeah, it's a good point. I I, 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 I do think that uh, that statistic, basic statistics, should be mandatory for everyone, though, because you see a lot of people with with no training in STEM whatsoever um, making lots of outlandish claims, and that does impact everyone. <laughs> you know, uh, yeah. you know, in this climate today. Well, so, you know, statistics should be a good thing you know,
3: because we face them every day. So that's a practical skill because mm-hmm. you're reading statistics every yeah. day in the newspaper. Learning about basic financial skills would be great in high school. Um, Learning about things that you actually use in mathematics would be great for a lot of students who aren't going that same college STEM route. We're we're forgetting about the fact that schools should be places that help students grow and develop the skills they need in life. And instead, we're focusing them on the things that industry told somebody at some point they wanted. That's not a way to organize our educational worlds.
2: Yeah. Yeah, so we could probably agree on the, the basics, like basic scientific reasoning. I think is important to a certain degree. Yeah. Um. But but no, I hear you. We're 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 robbing people, these kids, of their autonomy. Um. And that's
3: it's well, tragic. I, in the service the of trying use. to get yeah. them the highest scores on their STEM tests, we're driving out the arts, we're driving out the music, we're driving out the things. Right. that Bring kids to school and have them feel at home and engaged. Uh. You know, we're we're over testing them. We're drilling. We're just doing all the things that motivation research now for three decades or four decades has been telling us is backfiring. And the results are are clear. I mean, this experiment's been going on for 30 years, the high stakes standardized testing experiment. And it's an utter failure by anybody's measurement. I challenge anybody who hears this broadcast to tell me any positive evidence they have. For how high-stakes standardized testing has helped our schools, our children, our teachers, or anybody, there is no evidence. There is no value. There's just a way of testing companies making money and spoiling the cultures of our schools. Mm. I don't
2: have a strong opinion about this, though. (laughs) <laughs> well, they're, man, they're, uh, look, I'm right there with you. There needs to be a major overhaul. Oh, man. Have you, are you, have you made contact with the field of positive education? You know, um, there's these, yeah. And, and, and you know, in, I'd love to get your thoughts. What, are, what do you think of positive psychology as a field? Because you're not actually, you know, you didn't like start off in like positive psychology, yet you've, you found yourself in, in the field of positive psychology. I mean, people in the field love you. You know, and they talk about you all the time, and they they incorporate what you're doing into the work they're doing. So I was just wondering, you know, what what you're thinking is of that the emergence of that the field.
3: Institute for Positive Psychology in in Sydney.
2: You're at <laughs> my. Oh, is that
3: right? Is my, that right? Yeah, okay. Yeah, the, the institute at uh, Australian Catholic University is called the Institute for Positive Psychology and Education. That's mm-hmm. our. That's our. Okay.
2: Institute. Oh, that's cool. Yeah. Wow. Very. I cool. Know, SDT, but, but you did. But you know what I'm saying? Yeah.
3: S D T yeah. was around before the movement called positive psychology began. So we were, I think we already had as our central question, what are the things that help people flourish? And that is the same Mm -hmm. central question that positive psychology asks. And so indeed, I think we have a lot of relationships to the scholarship and the activities of people who are in positive psychology. I, I don't identify as a positive psychologist because I'm also a clinician. I'm interested in psychopathology and human degradation and human oppression, both sides of this coin. Not just the flourishing, but also what are the harms? How are we doing harms to people? And self-determination theory is really a theory about both aspects of that. It's a, it's a, it gives explanations for the etiology of uh, various mental distress and disorders. It also gives uh, a map of how to help people flourish and what they need to be at their best.
2: Absolutely, you talk about the factors that promote uh, healthy psychological and behavioral functioning. How can self-determination help bring peace to the world, reduce aggression, increase altruism, and bring out the best in humans?
3: Well, we've moved a lot recently in the direction of looking at what we call pervasive environments and their effect on people. So how do the political structures and economic structures of the world have an impact on people's well-being through their basic psychological needs? So just an instance of this is that if you have a country where the wealth is distributed really unequally, we find that well-being is lower, controlling even for overall wealth. And we see that in there, that's because wealth inequality has an impact on people's perceptions of autonomy and competence and relatedness. It, it directly impacts their sense of the people around them, their competitiveness with them, uh, and it has an impact on well-being. So. We, we're asking the question a lot now, what kind of political and economic structures are the best at fulfilling people's basic psychological needs and therefore producing well-being? And you know, some of the findings have to do with the perception that you have rights and, uh, and privileges within a society and that you're not stigmatized and you're not excluded. These things matter a lot to people's well-being, again, through their basic psychological needs. Um, Again, uh, the distribution of wealth matters a lot. Um, so, I th- you know, I think when we're trying to look at how can we create a good society, we have to look at both macro structures and family structures both. It's not just, um, you know, the local proximal influences on that. And uh, so changing the world. Yeah, I mean, it's by trying to hold public policies and forms and structures to the criteria of are they good at meeting basic psychological needs?
2: Man, the world needs this so much right now. Help save the world, Rich. Help save the world.
3: Yeah. Well, I think yeah. we're all trying to do that, and I think it, I think it does matter. You know, SDT is a, is a a theory about change, and it's we've always aimed to be very practical. So one of the good things about the theory is it's not just oh these are things predict outcomes, but we also have interventions to help increase relatedness, to help increase autonomy, to help increase feelings of competence. Um, and, you know, and ideas about how to make that actually happen in life. And, and of course, you know, if a theory doesn't really make a difference to society, then why have it?
2: Um, I mean, I, I've had some, some professors who are very pure, pure uh, scientists who argue uh, the opposite. They'll say a good scientist actually shouldn't get involved in, in uh, applying their work. They should just try to do the best science they can do. So I, I've, heard, I've heard it from both ends.
3: <laughs> uh, you know, I, I can get that if you're, uh, if you're an astrophysicist, but if you're a medical scientist, don't you care about the implications of your findings? Aren't you trying to find the cure to this problem or that problem? If you're a psychological scientist, isn't it about the state of human beings that your inquiry is concerned? So it's not a neutral science, even if you think you're being neutral. Uh, when it has no practical value then you're using up society's resources for something that may have no practical value um, so I, I, I can't agree with that I, I think in the human sciences we're asking questions that have import for human humanity uh, and we don't have all yeah. that much time to be fooling around either
2: yeah yeah. I, I mean, mean I, look I, at the state the of the human race yeah.
3: and look at what we're leaving that the yeah. next generation so we have to solve some of these problems now and we well, need practice. I definitely that really feel that urgency.
2: We're doing that. Yeah. Yeah, I definitely feel that urgency too. And I mean, that, that's my own bent as well. But I'm, I'm just telling you, like in grad school and various points of my life when I've wanted to apply my work, I've gotten pushback from, uh, you know, from academics, you know, saying that that's not my business. Um, So, I mean, it's refreshing to hear what you're saying, but I'm just letting you know that's not the the, the pervasive view.
3: Well, the place that you leave your values out is when you're doing that basic research, you try and bring a dispassionate, um, critical eye to that. And I believe that in SDT, we do that. It's not that we judge everything with a a value lens. It's in your basic research, you apply the scientific method, which means you think seriously about your data, you're self-critical in it. But when you think about the purposes of why we do any of our work,
2: you're going to leave values
3: out of it. I, I, I don't understand that as a life position.
2: Yeah, I hear you. Um, you. Look, you've done so much You and you've applied this STD theory to such diverse environments. We already talked about work organizations, education, but you've also applied it to health, sport. An exercise domain, video games, virtual environments. Can you tell me what you're uh, really excited about right now that you're working on? I know that you have a neuro lab, so you're really getting into neuroscience work. Tell me whatever to end ending this interview that you're really excited about right now. They working mm-hmm. on.
3: Well, you know, as, as you say, you know, we work on both the mechanistic end, so we're interested in the uh, neurological underpinnings of autonomous behavior and of close relationships. So that's what we're doing in our. Labs at Sydney, mm. um, but on the other end, we're interested in the macro structures, so how economic structures and how wealth distribution, uh, social policies mm. affect people's well-being too. So uh, and everything in between. So uh, you know, one of the things I think the values of a broad theory like SDT is it allows you to ask questions at every level of analysis, but it also then demands that you find evidence at every level of analysis that can be coordinated in uh, with the spirit of conciliance. And, uh, and I think that's our drive. So um, I think my problem, Scott, is I'm interested in too much. <laughs> my know, problem
2: I, I, too, brother. I'm yeah. pretty
3: passionate about a lot of things uh, within, uh, within the field. But right now we're just finishing uh, the uh, new Oxford handbook of self-determination theory uh-huh. research. Uh, Great. Um, I'm just finishing with all the chapters in it. There's 55 chapters in that book, all on different topics associated with self-determination theory. Reading those over, what I'm really excited about is that there's a community out there of you know, hundreds and hundreds of psychologists who are using SDT in earnest and who are becoming better experts in all the subject areas than me or Ed or anybody else who's been there. So what I'm excited about is that there's a new generation of self-determination theories who are a lot smarter than me.
2: I love that. I really appreciate your humility, and I appreciate um, just your legendary work in the field. There's no, there's no other way of putting it. Uh, it was a true honor and delight for me to chat with you today, and uh, I just want to thank you so much for being yeah, on thanks, my podcast. Scott, thanks for
3: having me. I'd love to come back sometime, especially after I read the Transcendence book, because uh, yeah, then we then we can uh, have a discussion yeah. in detail and nerd out about all that.
2: All that. now now that would be so much fun so uh yeah i'm gonna i'm gonna get that shipped out to you and we can really test. nerd out <laughs> <laughs> thanks thanks rich no that's great thanks for listening to this episode of the psychology podcast if you'd like to react in some way to something you heard i encourage you to join in the discussion at the that's the thanks for being such a great supporter of the show And tune in next time for more on the Mind, Brain, Behavior, and Creativity.
0: The Elevation with Stephen Furtick podcast was created with you in mind. This is a podcast for those feeling discouraged or needing guidance from God.